We're continuing through our series through the book of Lamentations this morning. We find ourselves in Lamentations chapter 4. As we're turning there, just as a, as a reminder, if, in case you've forgotten or if you are hopping in here uh, with us for the first time, about the, the book of Lamentations. It's not one that we go to very often. Uh, it's a book that some of us are perhaps scared of or just don't exactly know what to do with. Lamentations was written uh, by um, the, the author here. We don't exactly know who. Some think Jeremiah, some think someone else who has suffered uh, through, either way, the, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, deep, deep wounds that this has. Uh, you can feel it in the author's soul as he is bringing forth the laments and the groans and the cries, not just of him, his own self and his own heart, but of, the, in one sense, representative of the entire people of Jerusalem. Uh, let's pray as we, before we, we come to the word. Father, as we, as we come to your word, we pray that, that as you speak in this time, just as you have spoken through Jesus, spoken through your, your spirit, that you continue to do so this morning. That, that you would open up our hearts to be able to listen to what you have to say to us here. And that the contents of your word, though it might be difficult, would be, would be brought to our understanding and brought down into our souls by your spirit. Father, we need him blowing across our hearts, across our minds. Form us to be people who, who are not just joyful, but who can also lament. For lament is done in hope, knowing who you are. And knowing who you are ultimately as it's been revealed in your son, Jesus. So we, may we not stray from your word in this time. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Lamentations chapter 4. Uh, this is the, the fourth of the, the five separate uh, yet related uh, elegies or reflections upon suffering in the events, the historical event of, of Jerusalem's destruction. This is Lamentations 4. Pay careful attention. This is the word of God. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. 
Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers, people said among the nations. They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lie in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he'll punish. He will uncover your sins. Amen. Lament has a way of provoking reflection. We inevitably ask questions in hard times, in difficult moments, in our sorrows, and both our own sorrows in difficult times, but also in those which we observe. I mean, think about the last funeral that you attended. Funerals have a, a remarkable ability to get us to think about life in sobering ways. The words uh, in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. There's something about the heaviness of the moment and the, mo- the heaviness of that sorrow that confronts us. But it doesn't just happen at funerals. It's any time that we experience sadness, both personally or when we see it from afar. The losses of family and friends. The loss of a future. The loss of optimism. It raises questions about life. About its meaning. About human frailty. People chase after happiness by by blinding themselves or by distracting themselves from sorrow. But sorrow and lament, though, is something that we need to be more aware of. And that's not asking that God would bring more suffering into our lives, but rather that we would look at suffering head on. That we would be confronted by it instead of dismissing it or distracting ourselves from it. Are we afraid by what we'll see? 
When it comes to us, are we afraid of asking who God is? Or are we afraid of who it might show us to be? As we said here over and over going through the book of Lamentations, it's a series of five elegies, five reflections on deep sorrow and suffering. And all of them we've seen have highlighted something different. Chapter one, if you remember, was saying God did this and we brought it on ourselves. Chapter two is saying God did this and it's the common human experience. It's life under the fall. Chapter three from last week said God did this. And those remarkable words that even Ben reminded us of in our prayer this morning. And his steadfast love never ceases. We see a progression in the author going through each song. It's a trajectory that, that, that reaches a crux moment in the third lament. And that moment here, is, it's, again, it's like going up. We reach this moment and everything kind of falls down from it. It alters his view of moving, moving forward. He begins to contemplate on the steadfast love of the Lord and it allows him to think with a little more clarity. Even a little more clarity with everything that's been going on right in front of him. God's doing his work on the poet through not merely suffering, but through that suffering, the reminder that God is also one of steadfast love. That he is a covenantal God. And it changes his approach to the suffering that he sees all around him that he himself is experiencing. We see from that that the key isn't to to push suffering aside. When suffering comes, it's to embrace lament. And lament and suffering aren't the same. Lament is the response to suffering. It's a response to suffering that issues its cry to God, pleading for mercy in our times in the wilderness. Because things seem incongruent as we know them right now, with the promises that he's given. Lament tries to make sense of that, and it cries out to God in prayer. It allows us to exercise faith in him while not dismissing the sorrow and the pain and the darkness. And it might take us some time to get there. Again, it took the author, the poet, several chapters to get here. But as the the writer continues to grapple with the destruction around him, with this, with this lament here in Lamentations 4, I want us to look at four reflections that we have regarding lament. And the first is this. Lament is a worthy response to observing life's disillusion. Lament is a worthy response to observing life's dis, dis, did I say disillusion? Uh, disintegration, sorry. Disintegration. The reason why is disintegration here is because we read of this disillusion or this disintegration of how things were into what things became. In other words, it's, it's what was and then now what it's turned out to be. Right away in verse 1, it's the, it talks about the gold of the, the temple and the citadels, but yet it's lost its luster. It's grown dim. It's lost its shine. The stones of the temple, they're no longer built up into this beautiful edifice. They're now scattered out in the streets. The compassionate mothers who are nursing children, well, they're no longer suckled, but they're crying out in hunger and they're withering. And even in this gruesome note that we see, they're even bo- mothers are boiling their own children. What we have here is the order and beauty turning into and devolving into chaos and destruction. 
It's the glory here of how things were and it's now being falling apart and reduced to this. And when the author sees this, rebuilding seems insurmountable. The key question for him is, where do we go from here? Looks around at everything, at this horrible scene around him. Where do we go from here? How are we supposed to move forward? Even if we knew how, which is unfathomable to me at the moment, since our glory has departed, God seems to have left us, and Babylon stands over us as overlords, even if we know how, we have no strength. And even the next generation after us here, the youngest generation, is dying in our midst. Where do we go from here, God? How do we pick up amid the ruins? And maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you're feeling it here this morning. You're thinking about the times that were, the, mo- the glorious times of old that you've lived through, and you're looking at where they are now. And you have no clue where to go. You think about the, the decisions from in life that you've made, or maybe it's been, been un- the, the, the unthinkable events which have come into your life, but you look at things and you say, where am I supposed to go? Picking up the pieces seems absolutely impossible right now. One of the tendencies that we have is to look back. To keep our eyes fixed back on how things were. Right? Thinking about the good old days. If we could just get back to that time or when things were like that, then everything would be okay. If I could just reclaim how life was, then everything would be fine. Right? Those are common experience or common responses to financial ruin. They're common responses when we reflect on a lost life. Or to moral and political degradation that happens on a widespread scale. But that mindset isn't hope. If you're only looking back, then you're never looking ahead. And then if that's the case, then the past that we've idealized slowly becomes the past that we idolize. If things really are as bad as they appear, then hope can only come by looking forward to God's redemption. And that happens when we understand the sin and the fall. It shows us the fallenness of life in all seasons, in all periods. And it mourns the loss there, but it also looks ahead in hope. Tears and sadness are okay. Sadness presupposes something good that was lost. It presupposes something that that is worthy of weeping over. It's okay to shed tears about that. Sorrow is not a sign of weakness. Stoic responses, the the stiff upper lip don't don't do justice to God having made goodness in the world and then the awful reality of loss. Lament realizes the loss of life and how it has disintegrated, especially in the face of no future or of a future that might seem intolerable. The American way or the, Amer- the way of self-sufficiency says to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the biblical way, which understands the covenantal faithfulness of God in a fallen world, is to lament. To issue a complaint, a prayer to God, asking him and trusting him to act according to his promises. The second reflection I want us to look at here, though, is lament shows us the rival hopes that we have held on to. Lament shows us the rival hopes that we have held on to. 
That's part of the clarity that lament brings. Because sometimes it takes hardship to show us our true selves, including where our hope truly lies. When we are stripped of everything that we have or of everything that we've held dearly, that it forces us to reckon with what is truly valuable. Lament becomes a mirror that shows us our inner selves and it allows us to see the weaknesses also of what we have previously thought was valuable. And it becomes a means that God uses to grow us. Now, is this hard? Absolutely. And I can't speak from experience on this, but others can. A man named William Cooper, you may have heard of him. He was a contemporary and a good friend of John Owen. Or sorry, John Owen. Um, John Newton. There are too many famous Johns throughout church history. Uh, but John Newton, uh, he was a, a man who was... Uh, who was who uh, was a poet, a hymn writer, but a man also who had deep depression. Uh, he ended up almost going insane at one point. He tried to take his life on at least two separate occasions. A man who was well acquainted with sorrow, but through that also knew the goodness of God. And he writes the words of this song of a poem and a hymn. It says, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And he, these are a few of the lines from there that, that Cooper writes. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. That's the first part. He's saying, I ask the Lord that I would grow. And then he begins to outline how God actually brought him into some very low and deep places. His prayer was heard. God's growing him, and not in some sweet, idyllic way, but he continues to write, Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And here is the lament then. He says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. And then he concludes with this. And again, this is what makes this so beautiful, is that this is a man who is very well acquainted with sorrows and suffering. And he writes this. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. Cooper hits at something deep in that. That God sometimes brings us trials and brings us suffering to expose our hearts. Not for inflicting pain for the sake of affliction itself. We heard that for last week in Lamentations 3 verses 31 through 33. That though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does it for the sake of showing us the vanity of all of our other loves and bringing us into a deeper apprehension of his character and his mercy. And friends, a God who would give his very son for us could do nothing less. Tim Keller writes in a book, he says, he talks about how sorrow and despair are not the same. Sorrow and despair are not the same. You can be sorrowful for something that's gone. 
But despair is much deeper, right? Sorrow says, I mourn this loss. But despair says, I can't live without this. That's a helpful diagnostic for us. Am I sorrowful in a moment? Or am I despairing? Am I sorrowful or am I despairing? It tests our reflexes. Where's my hope? If you're feeling despair, chances are that's where your hope has been. Can you give an honest look at that? And then look at at what God in Christ has for you instead? And there are two, though, two of these these reflections that we have here on essentially the sorrow and despair, though, and the the where is our false hope. We have have two, though, that we see here from Lamentations 4 that are brought up. One is leadership and political power. Because they were looking for hope from a foreign national saviors. You look in verse 17. They were watching. We watched for a nation that could not come and save them. And when Babylon threatened, when Babylon was at their door, they pinned their hope on Egypt to come and rescue them. It was a story, though, that played itself over and over in Israel's history. They were God's people, but they looked to a rival God of political strength, of national strength, or some other nation. And ironically, in doing so, it just incurred more and more judgment upon them. It got them nowhere. In fact, it actually brought more and more of Babylon's wrath upon them. And it showed the weakness also of the nations. It showed the weakness of their own king. And the whole while they missed that the almighty God over the universe was there in their midst. Only when, when the Lord took it all away and laid them low did they actually see their folly. That's a good question for us even as we approach the, the latest election. Where's our hope lie? See, that that diagnostic question happens with the response of when your candidate wins or loses. The response that you have reveals your heart. Does everything ride upon this election? Perhaps rather we should ask, ask me this. Where is God? Is God at work in me? Is God at work in us? Is God at work in the church? Another one that we see here from uh, from, from Lamentations for his wealth. There's this glorification of the wealth that was once enjoyed by, by the people. The gold and the gems are celebrated, but now they're scattered, they're, they're cast in ruins, they've, they've lost their luster. The wealthy, we read here about the wealthy and the comfortable, those who are dressed in fine purples, eating fine delicacies, though they wither away and they're hungry. Their wealth and their status and riches got them nowhere. How many different ways does wealth become our comfort in affording a different or in affording a a certain lifestyle, in the peace and security that it brings? Before we start thinking, though, only of the rich and those who have plenty, it's also the idol of those who have little as well. Covetous feelings are not mutually exclusive to one socioeconomic class. How many people work? And work and work for the sake of financial security or for maintaining a certain ideal of life, yet at the expense of, every, of, of other parts of their lives, perhaps at the expense of their family, perhaps at the expense of the church. If you're feeling a little agitated or uneasy right now, it probably means something's been bumped within you. But make no mistake, it is lamentable if it's taken away. But is is it sorrow that's felt or is it despair? 
Is it lament or is it looking at a future that's intolerable? Those are questions which probe our hearts. And who really is God when those parts of our hearts then are exposed? The third, though, the third that we have is lament, lament happens for public griefs. Lament happens for public griefs. It happens on a personal basis. That's what so much of this series has been about, apart so, or been about so far. It's been the, the personal lament. But there are also the, the, the public laments, too, for public and widespread sorrows, for known griefs. Sorrow isn't just individualized. Sorrow is also experienced together. And for more than just the griefs that we experience on our own, though it grieves for the widespread sins that we see in society, the sufferings of entire groups of people, the failures of institutions, and for those who suffer in their wake. And that was certainly the case of Zion. There was grief over the destruction, but there was also grief over the sin which put them there in that place. Lament happens publicly. It's a different sort of complaint than what we are accustomed to in a public setting. The, the default response for us may be to grow indignant or to complain out of bitterness. That's the sort of, of response that takes to social media first. But what we see here is that those, those times they're worthy of lament. Those situations are worthy of complaint, complaint to God which cries out, How long, O Lord? And it looks to him in hope and suffering. Widespread, systemic sins, institutional failures. That was the case for Jerusalem. That was the case of Jerusalem here. And so what we have here as we look in, in Lamentations 4 is one of the things that's brought out is a failure of leadership. And especially the religious leadership. Look in verses 13 through 16. Over and over there talking about the, the prophets and, or the, talking about the, the prophets and the priests and then the elders now what we have here is going on, going on is there's a unique relationship here between church and state in, in Old Testament Israel. And so you have the priests and also the elders there in this relationship where, where civic government and religious government were, were tied together. And here, those who were responsible for teaching and for governing in the righteousness of the Lord were defiled by the blood of the innocent. They were guilty of turning away from, if not directly acting against, the justice that God intended to place in their city, in their land, and among their people. They were so defiled. The poet, the writer, gives this image of the priests of being like lepers and the people trying to cast them away as being unclean. Some things never change. As much as we would hope, the reality of wicked individuals set in leadership over God's people isn't any different. It's happened throughout history. It happens still today. All sorts of wrongs are committed at all sorts of levels and, all, and within all sorts of denominations and traditions. We could look at the evangelical landscape and see prominent pastors and evangelical leaders who have shown themselves by wickedness and, and perversions. But before we puff ourselves up, though, with our, our uh, superior theological and liturgical tradition that we have here in the PCA, we need also think that our own denomination is not exempt. We have histories of racism in our past. Uh, we, have, we still have pastors and leaders and even well-known ones who have misused leadership, who have chased after their own desires and have left a trail of wreckage behind 
And we may grow angry when we hear of such things. And we ought to. That is a sort of anger that reflects God's justice. He cares about his sheep who have been injured and taken advantage of. Jesus is the good shepherd. He came to care for lost sheep, sheep who have been, have been injured. God promises to bind the wounds of those injured sheep and to deal with the predatory shepherds. But do we also lament? We have anger. But do tears accompany our anger as well? Do we weep with those who have suffered? Do we weep with them? Do we weep because these are grievous actions? Lament is warranted, especially in these instances where God's people are being wounded. How long, O Lord? This all seems incongruous with your plans and your desires for your people, for the church. But ultimately, though, that cry turns back ultimately to, to trust and to hope. Because this is the church that Jesus died for. This is the church that he loves. This is the church that Jesus himself has promised to prevail. That he's given his spirit to. That he's gifted. That he sits over right now. And loves and prays for with the deepest of desires. Lament is when God's promises and his Present, and, the, and our present circumstances don't seem to align. When the church has ugly situations, the cry of lament looks at it all and it trusts in Jesus' work and his promise to make it well. And that brings us to our fourth and final reflection here from Lamentations 4. Lament puts hope in God's justice. Lament puts hope in God's justice. Because Lamentations 4 ends in hope, verses 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. That's hope right there. The hope is in reciprocal justice. That what was done to Zion would be done to her enemies. And even the bystanders like Edom, a foreign nation that was one of the bystanders who gloated and didn't treat them any different. Didn't offer any, laid, or any, any aid. Didn't offer up any lament when they saw what was happening to Zion. Justice isn't often what we think of when it comes to, to hope, right? But put yourself, though, in the shoes of someone who has been on the receiving end of violence. There is incredible comfort in knowing that the wicked won't walk free. Because at its heart, there is a desire to see things made right. A desire to see God make things right. And Zion's lament ends in hope. A hope that expresses a certain confidence that the Lord will act justly. Justly in accordance with to his covenantal steadfast love with them. Justice that the guilty won't go unpunished. And a justice that, that God will be both just and righteous with his promise to restore. I mean, think, of, think with the, those words at the beginning of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It says then that the, the penalty of your sins has been paid. 
We have here the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. When we talk about God's justice and his people, it also means we talk about grace. Because his people are defined by grace. But grace means something undeserved comes to those who deserved otherwise. And in this case, it's a people who deserve justice be served to them for their turning away in sin. Instead, be shown undeserved grace. Grace becomes gracious when judgment is the just thing to do. And yet, when God shows grace, it isn't at the expense of his justice. He cannot wink at sin and, and, and wrongs and wave his hand and just let it all go. That's not justice. What would those who have been offended think about that? Justice is perfectly revealed and perfectly meted out in the case of God's people, not upon those who deserved it, but upon the only one ever in history who didn't deserve it. It was poured out on Jesus so that when God shows grace to his people, his, ju his justice is also done. It's how the Father, God the Father, can be both the one who declares sinners to be just in his sight and also maintain his justice. Because the justice for the sins of his people was paid in full at the cross by Jesus. And the only difference between Zion and the nations here was grace. And friends, the only difference between people who are in Christ and those who aren't is grace. It's this justice and mercy that brings us back to the cross. As all lament must bring us back to the cross. That when we lament, we do so with hope, knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. That even though our worlds may appear to be falling apart, God's steadfast love continues to stand above everything. That when our rival hopes are, are revealed and we see the nothingness of the idols that we've held on to in place of God. It is truly God's good pleasure to show us these things so that we can come back again and again and cling more tightly to Jesus who is crucified and raised for us. Who is crucified as he took the sins of, those, of that idolatry that we've held on to and has instead raised us in a new life. And when the griefs and the sorrows occur on public settings, even in the leaders of the church... We can weep knowing the incredible love that Jesus has for such a body of sinners like us. Lament is cruciform. It takes the shape of the cross. Even in all of the confusions and the sorrows of life, it looks at God and his promises as reality. Because Jesus Christ was crucified, is raised, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father for his people. Let's pray. Lord, such trials that we undergo, such sufferings and sorrows that we see in the world, ones that even touch us personally, are too close for comfort. Lord, though, we can issue up our lament in these times, knowing that you hear us and you are pleased to respond because you have given your son Jesus. Because you are a covenantally steadfast, a covenantally faithful God to us, which has been sealed. That covenant has been sealed to us in blood, not our blood, in the, the, the sufferings that we go through. It has been sealed by the blood 
of Jesus at the cross. And so for us in our times of sorrow and lament, would we see that clearly? Would we weep with the tears of, of a heavy heart, but have clarity and sight and vision of Jesus who was crucified? As we come to the table, prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.